The following program is produced and furnished in conjunction with John Thomas Flynn, who is entirely responsible for its content. Welcome to Ask the CIO, SLED edition on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Now your host, John Thomas Flynn. Welcome, everyone. We're broadcasting today at the National Symposium of Cybersecurity in Government, sponsored by the Public Technology Institute and CompTIA. Our guest today is Eddie Reyes, Director of Public Safety Communications for Prince William County, Virginia Police Department. Welcome to Ask the CIO SLED Edition, our state and local show, Eddie. Glad to have you here. Thank you for allowing me to be here with you, John. It's an honor. We saw your presentation with your panel a few, uh, a few minutes ago entitled, Why Cybersecurity Must Be Number One Concern for Government. Before we get into that, Eddie, just give my listeners a little bit of your background, if you could. Sure. Thank you, John. So uh, my background has been mostly in the law enforcement field. I uh, completed 26 years of law enforcement work. Uh, I started with the Alexandria Police Department in 1990 as an entry-level police officer, and I retired in 2016, almost 26 years later, as the uh, senior deputy chief of police. And I focused my entire career on the technology aspects of law enforcement. You know, as a entry-level police officer, I had like the first video camera in the car. Uh, and then when I retired, I was deploying body-worn camera programs for the police departments. As I mentioned, your panel, uh, dis- the point discussion point was why cybersecurity should be the number one concern for government. What more can we do? Tell us about some of the basic challenges you find in your position for getting government engaged on these kinds of issues. Yeah, so probably the uh, largest uh, concern for me, uh, John, is just not having the dedicated uh, resources and expertise for the cyber protection of our systems. You know, public safety uh, infrastructure is very complicated. It's governed by a lot of state law and federal law and what we can release and how we can release it. And our systems, as complicated as they are, just don't have the type of expertise that's needed to protect our systems. And if that's the case, um, a lot of the issues that I've always found, and I kind of go back to my days as state CIO back in the 90s in California, leading up to the year 2000 issue. And one of the problems we had is where we're going to get the money for the mitigation efforts. Well, a lot of states, California included, I was actually president of NACIO at the time, we dictated things with our with our constituent agencies in, in California, said we weren't going to fund any new programs until their mitigation efforts had been completed. And so we stopped funding new projects. Is, is that something that they're considering doing at your level and local government to find the funds that are necessary to find the cybersecurity-related tools you need to do your job? No, John, and that's, uh, you know, something that's woefully uh, needed. Um, Unfortunately, mandates like that uh, are often frowned upon with municipal and state governments because they're looked upon as unfunded mandates. And so uh, each municipality, you know, here for sure in the national capital region is at a different level of cyber protection, uh, all because it just depends on the executive director of that municipality's uh, guidance and direction to their CIO as at what level of protection they're going to be at. So you've got some that are vulnerable, and then you have some that are bulletproof. Uh, and it just really depends on the leadership of the municipality and the, and the attitude that they have towards cyber protection. You know, you bring up a good point. Uh, the whole issue of uh, executive champions, executive leadership, 
whether it's cybersecurity or anything else related to information technology, is critical to have that executive champion. So how do you convince upper management that this is really important and needs to be taken care of? Well, I think it's a uh, bottoms-up approach uh, for sure, John. I mean, you have to have... Uh, you know, your tip of the spear, your workers, if you will, bringing these vulnerabilities to the attention of middle management. And then, of course, middle management's responsibility is to bubble that message up and demonstrate to the decision makers at the executive level exactly the vulnerabilities that are out there every single day. Because unfortunately, unless a municipality has a large uh, you know, cyber attack, most uh, executives sleep soundly at night thinking we're bulletproof. And if these concerns and issues aren't bubbling up, you know, from the tip of the spear up to the executive level, uh, they're naive, I think some of them are, in not knowing the vulnerabilities that are out there every single day. And when you produce a report that says we had seven attacks last night and repeat that report throughout the month, I think it puts in the forefront of an executive director's uh, mind just how vulnerable our networks are, but if not for the protection that we have in place. And it's important, I think, because uh, as we said before, this isn't just something that is going to be a bureaucratic headache. We're talking about lives here when systems go down. And in your job, in your background of public safety, it's even more important. Yeah, so, I mean, the system that I oversee now, John, the 911 system, is a very complicated system of multiple systems. You know, the telephony system is one, and there we interface with the large telco companies, the Verizons, the AT&Ts, and then that's interconnected with the computer-aided dispatch system. That's a totally separate system, but that's the system that collects all the data that the call takers and radio dispatchers receive from the callers and then send out. And then, of course, you got the land mobile radio system that ties everything together. And then we have a uh, recording system that records all of that because on, on a moment's notice, we have to provide an audio recording of either a phone call that came in or radio transmission that was just broadcast. And we have to send that through a network because somebody on the other end needs to receive that immediately. So all these uh, complicated systems are, are interconnected. And um, that's if those systems shut down, then someone dialing 911 needing emergency assistance may not get through. A police officer pushing to talk on his radio may not get through. The historical data for a, you know, a dangerous house may not be available. So that's what's at stake here when those systems go down. Yeah, very important, obviously. Uh, one of the things that came out from the various panels, including yourself, was when you do have a, a, an attack, if you will, or a ransom issue, uh, it was noted that you should get in touch with the, not only the FBI, not only with state folks, not only with your National Guard, et cetera, et cetera. But the thing that really didn't come out, I, I thought, was the fact you can't just call these people up when it happens. You've got to be dealing with these people over and over again to plan for these kind of incidents. Isn't that true? Oh, absolutely. I mentioned that during a, a part of my panel, is that you have to be proactive and in a preparing, uh, in, in a planning mode, as opposed to being reactive uh, and, you know, kind of flying by the seat of your pants in an emergency situation. Because when you've been attacked, uh, and your systems have been compromised. That's not the time to start thinking about, oh my God, what do we do now? Uh, you have to clearly have a continuity of operations plan in place, uh, have secondary and even in some cases, third level redundancy for some of these systems. And you really have to take cyber very seriously and you cannot wait until the attack happens to start planning about it. You have to, if you haven't started planning about it, you need to start today. Absolutely. Uh, one of the other issues that uh, that I found intriguing in your discussion, 
you brought up the uh, the training aspect, particularly how you've mandated training. Tell our audience a little bit how that works in your in your county. So our CIO in Prince William County has mandated training for all county employees, and it really holds your computer hostage, if you will, until you complete the training. And it's a 15-minute uh, dedicated training on the threats and vulnerabilities of cybersecurity. And it just really educates because there are a lot of, you know, our municipality has over 4,000 employees and you have a very wide range of educational experience in, in that many employees. And we have to make sure that for this one issue, we are all at the same level of knowledge because every employee holds the key to opening our network to a cyber attacker. And um, the person who least expects that to happen is someone who innocently clicks on a link that compromises the entire network. So I think our county CIO has done an excellent job of mandating training for all county employees. And if you don't complete it, you cannot use your computer until you do. That's really sums up. Literally, it shuts you off from the system. Yeah. If you don't do it. And it goes from the very top, the executive uh, level, all the way down to the office clerk if you will yeah to the person we just hired that day yeah yeah well the last uh, session we heard about was the issue of ransomware itself uh what's your county's position on ransomware do you have insurance how's that working out you know that's something above my knowledge uh, john this is something that i learned here for the first time uh just uh i, I know obviously some municipalities have paid uh, ransomware but i didn't realize there was ransomware insurance. I, the, you know, the beauty of coming to these training sessions is even though I've been in the industry for 30 years, uh, there's still some things I don't know about. And this, that's one of them. So trust me when I tell you, John, that I'm going to go back to my office, pick up the phone, call my CIO and say, do we have ransomware insurance? And if we do, do we pay it? <laughs> I had no idea it was this prevalent yeah. out there. You know, I've heard about it, and I, yeah. I, uh, I assumed, and it's a huge issue. And obviously, we just saw from some of the actual insurance providers and yeah. during the earlier session. I can see why he'd want to go back and check oh, on this because it just makes sense. And it didn't seem to be all that expensive, frankly. Correct. Although there's a lot of uh, I's to be dotted and T's to be crossed to make sure your policy backs you up. Is that yeah. right? Absolutely, John. And for us, I mean, we hope to never get in a ransomware situation because of the level of precaution and redundancy that we have in place. We back up our backup systems, as an example, and we just take cyber security very, very serious. And our goal is always to be on the preventive side and not on the reactive side. And so I think that's the best approach. Eddie, we'll take a short break right now. Our guest has been Eddie Reyes. Eddie is the Director of Public Safety Communications for Prince William County, Virginia Police Department. We're broadcasting today at the National Symposium on Cybersecurity and Government. We'll be right back with our next guest in just a moment. You're listening to Ask the CIO SLED Edition on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. I'm John Thomas Flynn. An FBI report shows violent crime in the United States decreased 3.3% in 2018 when compared to statistics from the previous year. Section Chief Scott Rago breaks down the violent crime numbers in the FBI's annual crime in the United States report for 2018. Murder and non-negligent manslaughter offenses fell 6.2% 
Aggravated assault offenses declined by 0.4%, while robberies went down by 12%. The fourth offense in the violent crime category, rape, increased by 2.7%. When comparing data from 2018 with 2017, the report shows property crime dipped 6.3%. About 16,660 U.S. law enforcement agencies voluntarily submitted the data to the FBI's Uniform Crime Reporting Program. The nation's crime data is available within the FBI's Crime Data Explorer. The report and the Crime Data Explorer can be found on fbi.gov UCR. With FBI This Week, I'm Molly Halpern of the Bureau. Diagnosing lung diseases requires listening, but using a stethoscope can be challenging in many busy clinics around the world where sounds include crying children, heavy traffic, beating fans, and more. So Munya Ilhalali, a Johns Hopkins engineer, is working on redesigning the entire stethoscope from scratch. It actually looks very similar, but has a souped-up listening device with an array of microphones that's basically a mini-computer. It identifies and cancels environmental sounds and processes chest noises using artificial intelligence that performs an analysis on the sound and flag signals that would indicate that maybe we need to get medical attention right away or what the condition of the lung is. Ilalali says field testing has shown the smart stethoscope works, even in noisy places, and its data can be sent electronically to specialists anywhere in the world. A first version should be available this year. With the National Academy of Engineering, Randy Atkins, Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. When we need help, we turn to government. When government needs help, they turn to Federal News Network. For news on the federal pay raise. To learn how other agencies handle IT modernization. To see how Congress funds my agency. For changes to my TRICARE benefits. Federal News Network, helping feds meet their mission. Welcome back to Ask the CIO Sled Edition on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. I'm John Thomas Flynn, and we're broadcasting today at the Public Technology Institute's National Symposium on Cybersecurity in Government. And my guest is Barry Condre. And you're from Chesterfield County, Virginia. That's south of Richmond State Capitol? Yes, sir. It's the uh, county just over the river, just south of Richmond, just across the river. Yes, sir. So welcome to Ask the CIO Sled Edition, our state and local program. Barry, glad to have you here. I'm happy to be here. Thank you. This has been a very unusual conference. Uh, each session I come come away from, I think I get more and more disappointed and, and saddened and frustrated <laughs> by, by what lays ahead. But you've been on several panels so far. I know the first one you were on uh, was talking about that uh, this whole issue of cybersecurity really has to be the most important thing you do in government. Tell us a little bit about that before we get into some of the other darker aspects of the panel. Oh, the darker aspects are more fun, but <laughs> the reason it's one of the most or the most important thing that we do is it's also it's all focused on trust. And at least at the local level, the trust that you have with the citizens, there's nothing more important than that. What trust lost is trust you probably will never get back. So safeguarding people's information, keeping them safe, delivering high level of services um, is all about trust, and we try really hard to maintain that, and cybersecurity is very central to that. You know, and why don't you tell us a little bit about your background? Summarize it for us. Sure, certainly. I have 35 years in industry. Uh, I've worked in almost all disciplines and all jobs in information technology. About half of that time was in the private sector working for Circuit City and then a number of other business verticals, and the rest of it has been in the public sector working either in state or local government. Okay, now tell us a little bit about the uh, assessing risk factors in this whole thing. 
What's that all about? Assessing risk factors. So risk assessment, cybersecurity really always starts with a risk assessment. All different organizations are going to present a different risk posture, a different um, level of adherence to certain standards and so forth. So everybody starts with a risk assessment at one level or another. A lot of people start with trying to take the most aggressive approach on passwords or, or network segmentation or something like that. The traditional approach is to do a risk assessment, take a look at your risk factors, and then move on with the, most, with the um, highest value targets from there. I think uh, your second panel having to do with ransomware. First of all, tell us what is ransomware? Ransomware, I always compare ransomware to, uh, the analogy I like to use is if you're at work and somebody goes to your house and changes the locks and bars the door and you come home from work and can't get into your house, this, effectively they've stolen your house and you have no way to get back in. It's a very primal and visceral reaction that people have to that. The technology side of this is when someone comes in and actually encrypts all of the files and all of the systems in your operation and you have no access to them because they're encrypted. The encryption is very strong, can't be broken by traditional means. The only way to unlock the files is either to restore a backup, hopefully you've been diligent about testing and, and doing backups, or to pay the criminal for the keys to unlock all of your files. Those are the two ways to overcome. You know, one of the things you brought up in your presentation, you gave a little history of ransomware, because it's really not that old. I think you said around 2005 it really started to come to the surface. So it's, ransomware has been out there for some time. What we've seen, what has made it so popular has been, it used to be delivered at a point in time. So if someone would click on something, one person's PC or just what that PC was uh, attached to, would be encrypted, maybe one file system, maybe one directory, and the PC. Now what we're seeing is ransomware delivered as a payload when it's associated with other worms, or other types of malware. This is when it can get deep into the infrastructure of systems and with these network systems it can hop from one server to another, encrypting vast swaths of the infrastructure as opposed to just a single instance. That's one thing that's changed just in the last 10 years of ransomware. Mm -hmm. Ransomware itself has been around for over a decade. But just recently have we seen these mass infestations where it's gone into backup systems, it's gone from system to system, transiting all of the network, um, all the network computers. Now it's gone from, uh, as you say, over the years, we're starting to see something that I was not that aware of, is ransomware insurance. Tell us about what that is, how it got started, and what's the state of the art? Well, so ransomware insurance is not, it's not so much insurance for ransomware as it is cyber insurance. So cyber insurance can cover a wide variety of costs. It can cover uh, costs to overcome, to rebuild infrastructure, to do notification of citizens if information is breached. And it can cover, depending on the policies, and the policies are very different, depending on the riders and the coverage and the coverage principles, it can cover paying ransom. You can be reimbursed, depending on the policy, if you pay your ransom. And what we've seen recently is insurance companies encouraging localities and policyholders to pay and pay early to overcome this, because these things never get cheaper. If you're ransomed and you get a price, that's the lowest price you're ever going to get. It may go up daily, it may go up weekly, but it will certainly only go up as time goes on as you, as you work with, mm -hmm. the, with the criminal. And that advice about paying, it kind of, kind of uh, runs counter to what we hear. All of us have watched the cop shows and about ransoms and kidnappings and all that, where they discourage payment of it. In this case, uh, the feds are still of, of that ilk, right? They're, uh, they're very, uh, very much telling people not to pay the ransom. The guidance you'll always get from law enforcement is not to pay the ransom. 
Absolutely. And in a perfect world, no one should ever pay a ransom. And we wouldn't have any ransom to pay because there wouldn't be a business model to support it. Unfortunately, services need to be delivered to citizens. When you can't issue building permits, when you can't cut checks, when you can't put out fires because your systems are locked up. And, you know, 80 to 90 percent of what our employees do on the job is 100 percent technology dependent. If you take their technology away, they can't do their job. There are citizen services that will not be delivered. And as local government officials, we have to be mindful of that. Sometimes the lesser of the evils is to restore the services and pay the ransom. Let's talk a little bit about who these, these ransom requesters are, if you will. You mentioned in your presentation there's actually tools on the Internet for any one of us to become in the ransom business. Tell us about that and who these other bad actors are. Well, bad actors can be literally anyone. We see predominantly the threat actors are coming from overseas. They're coming from countries that um, intend to do us harm. They can be nation-state actors. They can be cyber criminals. They can be bands of and the mafia, the cyber mafia, if you will, but we're also seeing local people who can do this as well. You know, you can go out and on the internet now and download ransomware kits. You can download um, the everything that you need to run a ransomware campaign. You can gain access to bot networks who will go out, try to breach systems, and deliver ransomware payloads for you. This is all. It's almost ransomware as a service, is the term it's being this term is being used. Mm. If you have access to the dark web, uh, you can go out to any number of conventional browsers that you can download and research this and download it with a minimum of technical skills. You can, um, you can conduct these operations. You've also described that when the, an entity or a state local government does get a ransomware request or demand, I guess I should say, uh, that if they don't pay it, they're never really sure whether they're going to clean the whole system out, even if they've backed it up and tested it successfully, there could be something still lurking in the back that could really corrupt your whole file over again. Yeah, so the difficult thing about this is that ransomware is only part of the problem. When you attract a criminal and you're infected with ransomware, it will almost always come along with something that spreads the ransomware, a worm or some other kind of malware that will infect your systems. Now, the malware can sit there and dormant in your system, and if you're not very diligent about cleaning it, it may reactivate itself at some point in the future. Just wake up, re-encrypt, and reinfect all of your systems. So cleaning the systems and disinfecting and that cyber hygiene after the attack is incredibly important if you don't want to be re-encrypted and re-ransomed you know, 30 days to the second later. Okay, we've only got about a minute left, Barry. Give us your three recommendations for your organization, any government organization out there, to prevent this thing from happening in the first place. Absolutely. The first one is get the basics right. Do the patching. Uh, try to keep your systems up to date. Uh, don't have a lot of people running around with elevated permissions who can do anything that they want. They, they present a problem. That's the first thing. Get the basics right. The second thing is train, train, train. Make sure your users understand what the risks are. Make sure they understand what a phishing email looks like and reward them when they get it right. Use positive reinforcement with them like that. And the third thing is make sure you talk to your leaders about what's going to happen when you get ransomware because everyone will get ransomware eventually. We have to assume we're going to be infected and that should drive people to talk to their county administrators, the city managers, the boards, their mayors about what's going to happen when this happens so that you're prepared. You're not having that conversation for the first time when you really do get infected. That's right, and being prepared is the first offense, I guess you'd say. With that, we're gonna to have to conclude our program today. I wanna to thank our guest, Barry Condry, who's the Chief Information Officer for Chesterfield, Virginia. And thanks for taking the time to be with us. 
Thank you all for listening. Content from the state and local program, which also includes curated news and original articles by yours truly and other more esteemed authors, is part of the freshly recently expanded AskTheCIO.com. Hope you can join us again each Thursday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time or listen to a podcast afterwards. Until then, bye for now. I'm John Thomas Flynn. You've been listening to Ask the CIO, Sled Edition with John Thomas Flynn on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Tune in Thursday mornings at 11 or subscribe to this show on iTunes or Podcast One.